Let's jump in. O Heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of Truth, for our present and post all things, treasure your blessings and give our life. Come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, a good one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, last week I had jumped ahead and had done the uh, talk on confession uh, that is recorded. That also would mean if you can listen to that one, and if you want, you can also go back the last time I did this class and did a talk on confession. I'm sure, I think I'm fairly certain I covered almost everything, but because I didn't have notes and I was just talking about confession in general, there are probably certain things that I said that got covered in one class or the other. Uh, does anyone have any questions about confession? It is okay to ask whatever you want, because it is... It's also one of those things that's kind of like talking about something that you've never done before. And if you've never done it before, then you don't really know, and there might be a lot of questions that come after that, and that is okay, and it's obviously more than welcome to ask me questions after the fact. I, I hear often people at their second or third confession say something like, am I doing this right? <laughs> I'm like, you're here, and if you're being honest to God, I, like, there is a form to it that I showed you last week, but like as you saw, the form is—it's not like a divine liturgy, right? It's—it's it's, there's form, but it's not that formal, right? So it is okay, unless you are ba basically unless you are talking about other people's sins, <laughs> you're basically going to be fine. Like I'm not going to tell you you're doing bad, right? Yeah. Good question. So I've heard that we're just supposed to repeat the same sins across confessions, like that's harmful to say. What, what do you mean? Over and over again, that they, that I committed the same sin. No, you should definitely. Well, I, unless you're talking about this particular sin when you're 15 and you bring it up at every single confession, well, I'm probably going to think you're a little neurotic or oh, okay. scrupulous. If we're talking about a particular addiction or challenge that you have because almost all of us basically have like almost like a form that we could probably print out every time and bring it to confession and have some like pencil edits on the side <laughs> where this might be just the flavor of the, the season right now because my mom is driving me absolutely bonkers so like my anger is off the, you know something like that where I'm like really despondent because somebody died in my family or I've lost my job like those kind of seasonal things but typically we kind of, uh, what I've seen, and it can get harder, there's a crystallization that occurs for a lot of us in our late teen years, I think. We kind of get crystallized into certain ways that we're going to deal with uh, our lives. Stress, hard things, uh, and things that we go to in order to numb ourselves and not deal with reality. And so those are typically the things that are going to follow us through for the rest of our life or we're at least going to struggle with them, and they're going to be the thing that we particularly have to be on guard for. This does kind of typecast down of men and women, typically in my experience, have similar challenges. Uh, moms come to confession and kind of confess mom things. Dads come to confession and kind of confess dad type things, right? like situations and where you're at in life and what's going on. So we are supposed to confess the same sin. Over if you're committing that sin again, yeah, you need to confess. Okay. At some point, you'll stop confessing things if you never, if you only have to say it once. Then, then what would be the point? Like, confession itself is a a salve. It is something that is necessary because it is, as I was talking last time, it's kind of the formalization of repentance itself. It's a ritualization of repentance. So we never stop repenting. So we still need regular confession. And everyone has a different frequency in which that occurs. Uh, and I do think there is something about, like, if there is a, a serious sin that has been uh, committed, then that is something that you need to give confession. But if it's like you raising your voice three times a day because of the situation because your kid just, like, utterly destroys the living room, and, like, unless you're, like, off the charts, off, you know, and that's, like, your conscience is bothered, but that kind of day-to-day... -day Sin, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, that is not necessarily where, like, every single day you need to come to confession because uh, 
but that there is a kind of checking in. But there are certain sins uh, that, you know, if you are committing fraud, if you are in certain situations, like those kind of things are things that need to be confessed and dealt with. Yes. I, I was going to ask, which I we weren't here last week, and we need to go back and listen to. You're more than welcome to ask. But I was wondering <coughs> some practical things. We're looking at an icon of Jesus during confession, correct? Or are we looking at you? You're standing to it really the side. Really depends. Uh, yeah. All right. So we're talking about the physicality of the thing. I'll, I'll review it because you guys are planning on coming on October first, so we need to do this now. Yes. <laughs> there is a Bible in here. <sighs> I'll use the cross I used last time. All right. In my office, just think that's G- like the icon of Jesus. Uh, you could be on a camp out divine liturgy and you want to go to confession. So there, there's not going to be like maybe an icon, but there's, unless you're in extreme, there almost all, there is going to be a Bible and a cross unless you're in an extreme situation, right? Uh, like a chaplain on a battlefield who needs to hear a confession of somebody who's dying or something like that, right? You, when you come, you venerate the Bible and the cross, uh, and then the priest says the prayer. There's basically an introductory prayer, and then you confess. Are we addressing God? Yeah, you address God. That doesn't mean that you might not ask me a question or like there's side conversation that happens, but that conversation is still happening before God. Right. Any other like form questions? It's so like riding a bike. Like when you're a kid and you don't know how to ride a bike, it feels awkward or whatever, and then you'll just get used to it. Yeah. Did you go over uh, absolution last last week? Uh-huh. Like, uh, because some priests want you to like kneel for absolution, and some will let you bow down. I inherited various practices here, so I kind of go with whatever is happening. I don't really care for people to go because I'll have some like if you're going all the way to the ground, that means I'm also going all the way to the ground to do something. It's not really necessary. All you have to do is like put your head over the cross. I mean, over the gospel, and then I can just do it like this. There's some priests that would have the epitrilion on, and they would like have the epitrilion over you as you're confessing. I want to preserve my back for as long as I can, and like if I'm doing this for an hour every single Saturday night, I, it makes more sense when you are like, uh, if you were to go to another Russian church, there might be some other churches, but the, the more of the Russian tradition, maybe Serbian tradition, uh, if there are multiple active priests in a parish. Uh, and even if not, like if you're doing a full vigil on Saturday nights, which is a more typical Russian thing to do, which is not just Great Vespers, but Great Vespers and Matins, and maybe even First Hour, tucked, tacked on the end, uh, there are certain parts of the service where the priest might go, at, like the, the, everything is set out in the church, and you they'll hear confessions during those services. Uh, you might even see this a big celebrations like uh, of feast days and it's a divine liturgy and there's like four priests standing outside they all have an analogian and they have a gospel and a cross and they're just standing there ready to hear confessions because you have like three or four hundred people coming and it is typical in the russian tradition uh that if you're going to receive holy communion you have gone to confession very recently and and rokor uh, the russian orthodox church outside of russia is common that the night before you are to attend the vigil or the great vespers before go to confession and then you receive holy communion the oca does not have that stringent and really in the russian church it's dependent upon the, your spiritual father your confessor or what the i i honestly could not handle every single person at saint anne's coming every single saturday night uh that would also mean that people would only commune maybe four times a year and that's not really the tradition that the oca has uh, received or what we do so what the, the Holy Synod has actually said, go to confession once a month is what they suggest. I have been suggesting doing it quarterly at this point. There are folks who do come monthly. There's folks who do come quarterly. Uh, I do think that once a year is probably not very advantageous for your spiritual life uh, because you need to take into account things a little bit more than once a year. Uh, because it, there is, in a sense, confession can kind of be a shock to the system. And what I mean by that is, like, wake you up. Because there's nothing like having to go in front of somebody and God and, like, 
confess your sins. Uh, but you can also, the other direction is like, you can be going every single week and you can, in a way, make it into a rote thing where you just say the same things over and over again, but you're not actually repenting. You're just kind of saying like, yeah, I'm guilty of these things. But that's not really the point either. So there's a sweet spot and each person is different as to their spiritual life and what's going on with it. If you if you feel heavy in your conscience about something, then schedule confession or come to confession. Make the sacrifice to come on a Saturday night and go to confession afterwards. Does that make sense? Any other questions about form or how specific are people when they come to you? Because you can say something in like a very vague way, like I would forgive me father I was angry or something or you could say like I was pissed off when I threw a hair dryer at my husband or something like those are two very different you are welcome to be specific the only things of specificity that I don't really want to know that much about is sexual stuff Hmm. for my sake and I wouldn't suggest doing that with any priest period it's just not necessary that's where you can say the sin if you want to talk about it, I mean, because with anger, most of us like with anger, it probably is not just a hair dryer. Hair dryer. I've never thrown a hair dryer. <laughs> you don't strike me as a hair dryer thrower. Uh, I don't even own a hair dryer. <laughs> but that that probably means there's other things, and you can get more specific. But it is okay to be thematic, and if you want advice about something or have a question about something to ask. Confession can also be something where it will be at some point in asking that I can address certain things or I might say something or I give advice, but other times I'll say it's probably good if we schedule a time and sit out and talk about something, if it's something that needs discernment or it needs more attention. You know, if you have a gambling habit that is threatening your family's, you know, livelihood, then we probably need to sit down and talk. And I'm probably going to suggest that you need to go see a counselor, an addictions counselor, in regards to gambling and figuring out and getting some tools in order to counter that. How you can get some accountability built into that. So we don't really need to schedule confession. We just go on a Saturday. There is space for I do both. Uh, Especially, like, folks who drive an hour away. Uh, I've heard them on Sundays, either before the service or even during coffee hour because of people traveling that far. Okay. Or if there's something really going on, they don't hear a confession. As in, like, if somebody's really upset about something and needs to get it off their... I, I, I use the term, get it off their plate, like, to just relieve themselves of what is going on. That would just be by emailing you. Mm-hmm. <coughs> or, I mean, if it's something serious that you're upset about, just saying, can I talk to you or do confession mm-hmm. at some point during coffee hour or something, it's fine. Okay. I might say I can't today because of X, Y, and Z, but like, well, if you can wait an hour, <laughs> an hour or something, then I can do it then just because that's something like catechism class or something like that. Any other questions? About the lifetime confession, uh-huh. um, any like practical advice on how to pick the memories or the actions? I have uh, documents of varying length. I have like three that I can think of off the top of my head. One is like 30 pages. But it's like, it's really got maybe four or five different ways of coming at things. Uh, so I can, hand, I can hand that to you. I, I'll give you, so when I go to confession, which I'm actually going tomorrow to Johnson City, uh, I go through like Beatitudes, uh, I can go to the Ten Commandments, that's not typically what I do, uh, because I usually hit most of those things by going through other things. I actually have developed a practice where I go through the various senses, my senses, like the five senses, and just think about things in which I have sinned through those things, or even just like mind, eyes, mouth, nose is a little harder, but maybe like overly curious or something like that, I don't know. Uh, Ears, uh, and just kind of like what my feet are quick to do, what my hands are quick to do, whatever, you know, that that kind of stuff. That's something I just kind of come up on my own. 
as a way of kind of like working through something. Because it's very easy, like in the moment, and I write my sins down. Uh, because in the moment when you go to confession, there might be one thing that kind of is the thing that you're the most <laughs> feel shame about or whatever, and then there's other things. But there might be that other thing that you really wish or want to confess and be able to maybe get advice about. But for whatever reason, maybe it's the thing that on Tuesday you thought, this is what I need advice about. By the time you get to confession on Saturday, you forgot about it until you walk out. That's happened to me multiple times. It's like, oh yeah, this thing. And then I get out of confession, I'm like, I'll just do it next time. This is not, you can read stuff in orthodoxy. And I, I just think everyone needs to be aware of rhetoric in the church. If you read 4th century fathers, they speak very directly and very strongly, and in some situations, hyperbolically in a certain sense. Have I talked about this before? Okay, what, what I mean by that is we are, not a, we are a culture of rhetoric, but we're not a culture of rhetoric in the way that the fathers, like they were actually trained rhetoricians in the Greco-Roman sense. So when they are talking about something, they will like blow it up into a huge thing. And we're very understated. And like maybe in homilies we kind of get like that, like we maybe overstate, but they're much more overstated. So this is carried on in the life of the church because what are we reading all the time? But fourth century, like we read a lot of old stuff. So when you read people saying things like, if you, uh, like you must confess every single sin. That is true. Like, that is good for you. You need to do that. But then they kind of put that, like, because if you forget something or don't say something, then, like, the fires of hell are going to get you, that kind of thing. You don't need to, like... So what I'm getting at is, like, confession is something that you grow into, and because you get one or two confessions in, and all of a sudden you realize, like, I forgot something that was actually a major theme of something from my late teens that I needed to have said in life confession. Oh, no. Just come to confession and just state it. It, it, it. It's not a cry. Like there are times where our hearts are hardened and our, we are blind and we are not aware to what is going on. There are sins that I guarantee that you're enmeshed in that you have an inkling of a clue of what's going on. Other people might know about it, but you might be completely just like, <laughs> right? Because you're concerned about these other things, but the things that other people are experiencing, right, because of the hardness of our heart, or just because it's just not where we're at. We're not spiritually mature enough, or whatever the case is. And something to be prayerful about, and God will enlighten you in due time. It's like when you get married. Like, you think, like, oh, yeah, yeah. then you get married, and you're like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that is right. <laughs> if you listen to your spouse, right? Or... In a good relationship or a friend, right? They're like, hey, I see this. If you have a good friend, right? We don't really do this much anymore. Have friends actually tell us things that we need to hear? Uh, at least I don't, I, you know. Anyways, uh, those are things that we might be unaware of. And when we hear somebody say something to us, like a spouse or a close friend, or even your priest who might say something or suggest something or ask a question, it's something to at least consider and not immediately be on guard and defensive about. It doesn't mean that you immediately assent to every single thing that somebody says that might be a criticism or they might be saying something you don't need to do. You need to be wise. Because not everybody knows everything about you, per se. Your spouse probably does, though. They live with you. My last question. <laughs> Sorry? I was just going to ask about... Um, one of my main concerns with, with confession, like my main concerns, is just not being aware of how dead I am. Like not knowing really the, the kind of sins I, I dwell in in many cases. But I guess there is there is no easy answer. For, like it's just time, right? As I am in the church, I read the fathers and I become more aware across time. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, I'm. I am. I would say it's like peeling an onion. <laughs> It's like you you're, you realize, and this is something I've, I've encouraged, is to not go go into despair because of this, because there's something about confession and orthodoxy and the kind of um, if you actually read the spiritual literature of the Orthodox Church, it can be much more specific than what you may have been used to before, or the ideal of holiness is much more 
I want to use the word rigid because that's not really what it is. Maybe intense because it has a much clearer like we we you look at the life of a saint right? that person loved God <laughs> they gave up everything and they actually like treated everyone with deference and canonic uh, or like life giving like they gave their, they poured their life out for others and I am not like that right so there is something about the life of confession and growing I mean, this is built in, instead of like a, a negative way, you can just look at it as a positive way. When you're looking at God, you're looking at infinite goodness, glory, love, etc. We as finite creatures do not actually display the aspect, attributes of God that well, right? So in a positive way, we are growing into an infinite aspect of holiness and goodness. So on some level, we're always in deficit because we're creatures, Right, it's an ontological. It's like a, a built-in reality that we are deficient. What I mean by deficient, we are the greatest crown of creation. I'm not talking about like we're just we are wretched sinners. But what I mean by that is like we're not just lost causes. Right, we we are glorious creatures of God who've stumbled and fallen and are broken and need help. So, but because we have been called to an infinite task of imitating the infinite God, it's always going to be an infinite sense of growth. So, Father, yeah. I just had a thought on this also. Um, you, you know, you, 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 you grow into becoming more penitential through your life in the church. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always believed that, that God never hides himself from people that earnestly seek him. Mm-hmm. And if you seek him and you ask him to make you, make you aware, what do I need to confess? What, what's, what's, what do I fall short of? And, and especially several months from now, when we go into Great Lent, um, the great canon of Saint Andrew of Crete, that that is that's that's an example of, of, of like praying to God to make me conscious of my sins, show me where I'm lacking, so that I can I can confess these. That that's just my thought on it. I also like the the prayers at Ephraim. Just the eight things that he mentions there, of things you know. It was one of those prayers when I first encountered like, oh, this is a neat prayer. And this, the longer I've been with it, I was like, how did he give a beautiful, like, set a concise, because it's only eight things that he really says. And he describes the internet perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, much will I take from me a spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. Uh, yea, grant unto me a spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love for thy servant. A learned king, grant me not to see my own, no, grant me not to see my own fault. Let me to see my own faults and not to judge my brother for blessed are thou unto ages of ages. So nine things he's actually saying. Right? Uh, just those things, right? I, I would sometimes even suggest to folks outside of Lent to embrace that prayer and do the prostrations. I wouldn't say that during Pascha. You should enjoy Pascha and like, don't do prostrations because we just did more than 40 days of prostrations, right? But there is something elemental, primal in that particular prayer. If you're using the prayer book, there's going through all sorts of things. Uh, There's also a book, uh, The Spiritual Psalter of St. Ephraim, that I highly suggest because it has a lot of spelling out in a little more detail or getting a little bit more deeper into particular virtues uh, and ways in which we can grow into those things. All right. Any more questions about confession? I'm fine that we're talking using this much time because this is one of those primary practices. It's a sacrament of the church, uh, and is also can be one of the touchiest, hard to navigate, never feel completely comfortable with, and that's okay. That you don't ever feel fully comfortable with it. I'd be a little worried, honestly, maybe if you felt completely comfortable with it. Uh, because maybe then you just have written off like actually being transparent in that space. You're gonna, I mean, this is kind of like we're gonna talk about marriage here in a second. Like, marriage is also one of those sacraments that I think it is something, and it's less and less this case because of our culture, but like, I think historically there was an aspect that you could kind of coast in it because there was a cultural like thing, right? Like, you can, as long as there's money and long as things are kind of flowing along, but the reality, like, that's not a sacrament. Like, there, like, 
you can go to confession and just kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I cannot, I am not a clairvoyant elder. Like, I'm just a priest, right? Like, I, I don't know your sins. I might know how you interact with people and I could maybe guess, like, just like you can see me and probably guess what my sins are, right? Like, or maybe they're evident, right? But you can treat confession and just go through the motions and you could do it week in, week out and just say stuff and your heart is nowhere present. Just like you can do that in marriage. Just like you can do that with your relationship with God. Just like coming to church, lighting candles, kissing things, like, oh, and you, your heart can be absolutely nowhere present. So, it is one of these things that in the midst of all of that, I'm not talking about therefore all the time you need to be on fire and this kind of like, yeah, it would be great. But like, it is okay to just not go through the motions, but like know that you have to do it and begrudgingly still do it. And maybe one confession, you just, it wasn't the greatest confession ever. And next time, you're on your knees bawling your eyes out. And you're nine, that wasn't what you even thought was going to happen, but there you are. Most of the times life is crazy and you want to go to confession because you just need to cry it out. And that's okay. I have tissues right next to it. It's fine. <laughs> My room has seen many tears and that is okay. That is what the space is for. So, does anyone have any questions? I know you guys have to leave in a minute, a little bit. So, uh, about the sections on marriage and family, did anyone get to read those sections? We read about chrismation. I might have gone a week ahead. I think that is next week. I almost did that. <laughs> I almost just said, I'm going to make today the last class. Uh, <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Since it, or we, we, I'm going to talk about it next week. Okay. Wait till okay. next week. Yeah, we're coming next week. Just letting you know. Okay. I think we read for next week. Am I week off by Sunday? I don't know if I am. I know I switched things around because I was supposed to talk about confession today. But I did it last week because I didn't get to read these chapters because last week was crazy. So. That's fine. So I, I highly suggest reading the section on marriage and family. Of course, the time before that, we talked about sexuality. And I think, obviously, you need to read the section on sexuality. Uh, marriage uh, marriage in the Orthodox Church is... I'm going to talk about some technical things here, just so that everybody is aware. Uh, because this is not a Protestant church, and I think uh, people are surprised sometimes that there there's, a, there's more form or... I'll say rules, quote unquote, in orthodoxy. It's like canons, basically, of the church. That there is that it's not just a Protestant church. I'll give you an example. In a lot of Protestant churches, they will marry somebody who is a Christian to somebody who is not a Christian. Have you guys seen this? I've seen this. That does not happen in the Orthodox Church. Uh, technically, historically, in the Orthodox Church, only you are only blessed to marry Orthodox Christians. Because we are in North America, and there is in this, probably in the few counties around here, there's maybe 600 Orthodox Christians, <laughs> the percentage of possibility of marrying another Orthodox Christian in good standing with the church is slow. I'm not saying slow, I just... Slow. Uh, so there is... <coughs> Uh, marriages, the bishop has to bless it. It's not just a, you know, it's almost pro forma, but it's still something that, like, I have a, a say in it. Uh, whether or not I recommend it to the bishop, but to marry uh, someone who is not an Orthodox Christian, they have to be baptized, Trinitarian baptism. Uh, and I, I asked for a, a, not a birth certificate, a, a heavenly birth certificate, a baptismal certificate. Uh, or a letter or something that, that is the case. And here at St. Anne's, I do premarital counseling, usually five to six sessions beforehand, because marriage is a sacrament. It is something that is done within the church. Uh, it is something that uh, has uh, a heavenly aspect to it. Uh, those who are married know that it is a sacrament, and like sacraments, it, revol it involves the cross. There's a cross through all of the sacraments. It is something 
that uh, iron sharpens iron from the book of Proverbs. Uh, if you allow your marriage to actually be a sacrament, and this is something throughout the New Testament too. In the Old Testament, we see good examples of marriage, but we see in the New Testament all sorts of situations. Paul has to address this all the time, right? What are the troubles in Corinth? Like all sorts of family marriage issues, right? Even down to who can marry or what, you know, I'd rather that they not, you know, I, Paul speaking, I would rather that everyone basically say celibate for the Lord, but it's okay to get married uh, because people burn with desire. So therefore she, they should be married. Uh, we already have in the New Testament this idea of like celibacy and the monastic life. Uh, and this is in the fathers. They say it is a higher life just as the spirit is higher than the body. But God has blessed and there's nothing wrong whatsoever in marriage uh, and the marriage bed. Uh, and uh, as especially reflected, uh, if you have the time and the desire, if you want to read the wedding service, I can send you the wedding service. Uh, it is reflected in it. Uh, very a strong emphasis on having children. That is a blessing. Uh, and gifts given to newly married because you're crowned king and queen, right? Is like new Adam, new Eve aspect to this. Uh, and the prayers uh, are very Old Testament in the sense of like, it's a lot of uh, listing of occasions and ways in which uh, God blessed Abraham uh, in various marriages. And, how, and it's not just marriages. We, we tend to think in the modern world of marriages as kind of like a contract between two people and individuals. If somebody breaks the contract, the contract's off, that's it. The, if you read the Old Testament and you think in Christian, uh, I mean, you probably haven't noticed this in my homilies how much I reference St. John Chrysostom, but I've been reading a lot of St. John Chrysostom recently. And there is, uh, as he talks about uh, Ephesians and the chapters about husband and wife, uh, he talks a lot about households. Marriages are households, right? It is an institution in and of itself. It's not just a contract between two individuals, but it is, of course, you have to think outside those two individuals, the two families that are now being merged. And it's also then the natural fruit of the union between a man and a woman through sexual relations is a child or multiple children, right? So there is, from the church's standpoint, these blessings are given, and then the prayers kind of repeat this multiple times in the marriage service for the sake of, like, the world, that you are receive riches and blessings in order to bless the world. Uh, so there is... Marriage is a sacrament in the sense of, like, personal holiness and striving together. And there's a lot of the, especially St. John Chrysostom, lauding the couple that is seeking heaven and how they can become for each other great helpers. They can encourage and goad each other on towards heaven. Uh, and then raising up children and the fear and admonition of the Lord. That that is an aspect. Uh, as much as in Orthodoxy sometimes can feel like we're almost surrounded just by monks and nuns there is a lot of this is because in North America we're like there would be three other churches in Oak Ridge Orthodox churches if we were like in Serbia or something like that mm -hmm. or this would be the church and there might be some Jehovah's Witnesses down the road who got sent over here by America right like there's just a different reality so you your experience of Orthodoxy yeah, there's a monastery that's up on the hill or up in the mountains, because that's exactly where they would be, right? And be named for St. Elijah, because they love to name monasteries up in mountains for St. Elijah. You can put two and two together for that one, right? He does a whole bunch of stuff on top of mountains. Uh, and people go in the end of the summer to the Feast of St. Elijah, but your experience of orthodoxy is not just monks. It is amongst all of the married folks and the, the children that have. Uh, so marriage uh, is something that um, the church does not uh, at least the OCA because part of the challenge of marriage is that marriage existed before the church was right so in the Greco-Roman world uh, you had folks who were being brought into the church that would have already been married and so the, the service of marriage is actually kind of late in development because marriage already existed right it was a. It's always been a social, political thing because we're talking about households instead of just, you know, individuals. So, 
in the Orthodox Church, uh, I, I bring that up because of questions of when marriages don't work, and there is divorce. Uh, in the Greek Church, they do do like declarations of divorce or ecclesiastical divorce. In the Antiochian Church, I believe that too. A lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, we're still talking about Christendom, where the church and the state were connected to each other in a more intimate way than they, they are here. Uh, so you are uh, divorced in the eyes of the church. That can, is something that will be like an ecclesiastical court because we have canon law. Like you think this is just Roman Catholic or Orthodox Church has canon law. If there's something, I'll give you an example. If there's something that is brought up against me that is something that I would be suspended for or an accusation and I would have maybe charges that I would be deposed, I would go before a group of my peers of other priests and I would have, there would be an ecclesiastical court with a bishop present. So I could be deposed, which means returned to the rank of a layman. Okay? So... The reality of the church recognizes that divorce happens, but it is uh, second marriages can occur in the church, but it's again something that has to be blessed by the bishop. Uh, there's also something, an aspect of second marriages and third marriages can happen. They're less likely to happen, and they again, it has to be that the bishop actually says yes. Uh, if you are uh, the second and third marriage, there is no fourth. That is, that's it. The second and third, they are penitent. There's penitential uh, prayers that are put in there, and even in the canons, aspects of uh, the priest doesn't go to like the party afterwards and stuff, right? Because there's a sense of like this is happening uh, for the sake of the two people, uh, especially if you're talking about situations where somebody has died or something like this, right? Uh, there's some penitential aspect to it. This isn't, I'm not saying the service is not like Lent, <laughs> but there's two prayers in there that are basically like because of the reality of the fall and things, there's still this aspect. Like, there's a penitential aspect to it. It's not over the top. I've done it before. So, but it is present. Um, these are things that are out of the priest's hand. They can help. To advocate or to say something to the bishop, but it's up to the bishop. My understanding with Archbishop Alexander, for example, he does not. If you were to get married outside of the church, say you're an Orthodox Christian and you elope with somebody and go get civilly married, that counts as getting married in the eyes of the Orthodox Church. And actually, uh, you are excommunicating yourself by marrying outside of the church. So it's something that the bishop, myself and the bishop, would have to discuss. That could mean years of penance. I'm not receiving Holy Communion, all, all, all sorts of things. It really depends on the situation, because there's all sorts of situations. Partly I'm saying all this stuff so that you all know what things are, so that, because I've had a situation or two that have come up in the past where it's a situation where people didn't really know what they were doing, and then they've already done something, and then tell me after the fact, and then I have to be like somebody who went and got married for a fourth time, and then they tell me, and I'm like, hold on a second, let's sit down. Well, why? <laughs> what? Okay, so uh, there's something you need to know, right? Uh, any questions about any of that? I know that's kind of technical, but I want you to know for your sake so that you don't get yourself in a situation at some point, all right? All of this stuff you can go online if you want to look up because it's freely available to the public. Uh, there is a book that's Clergy Guidelines that is basically for particular things from like ecumenical events to um, do not reserve communion in this way or this is what you do with oil that is to you know marriages and how what can happen at marriages I can't I can't co-officiate with a Protestant pastor or something like that that can't happen because that's not with the sacrament just things like that you can go on OCA clergy guidelines and you can read it for yourself so I'm not this isn't like esoteric hidden stuff. This is out there public stuff. But if you're coming into the church, you're not going to be looking up clergy guidelines. <laughs> That's, you're going to be like, what do they think about the Holy Spirit? Like, what is my experience at coffee hour, right? But this is some aspect as years in the church or, you know, your kids growing up in the church do need to know about, I want to say institutional life of the church because it's not really institutional, but the church is also not just a band of, like, teenagers hanging out. Like, this is... 
the body of Christ and it has guidelines that is what the canons of the church best practices of how we do things because of scripture yeah I have a technical question I guess yeah, uh, sure um, so if there are two people who are outside of the church that are married and then one uh, and becomes Christian uh, and then the other partner is obstinate and they divorce because of that um, there's a passage in it that says in, in the reading um, where you're supposed to be uh, not coercive but uh, uh, if it fails and the spouse is obstinate then it's like okay to uh, divorce them uh, and then that person remarries in the church is that first or a second marriage which person are we talking about the Mary? one in the church uh, it can be a situation of a second marriage. Okay. Uh, but the bishop, if, if all, if that is what, ha if there's an unbelieving spouse, New Test Paul talks about this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. If there's an unbelieving spouse, there is obviously a, a sense of um, meekness and humility, and you're not like I, I do not suggest pressuring things. I suggest living with that as and being at pieces with that as much as possible, because multiple spots in the New Testament talks about this is especially talking about a woman being married to an unbelieving husband Peter talks about this, Paul talks about this, right uh, or Paul also talks about like being unequally yoked and but he's usually, t if I'm remembering correctly like there's 2,000 years worth of stuff outside of scripture to even try to keep in my head, so uh, I'm almost certain when Paul is talking about do not be unequally yoked, he's talking about like procuring a marriage, he's not talking about after the fact or coming into the church and then having an unbelieving spouse uh, but the reality is that yeah it's still a second marriage period mm -hmm. uh, but all of these things so all of the like we have I'm going to say rules with scare quotes here there are rules but a lot of the way I'm, I'm trying to emphasize a lot of Americans when we think of rules we're very Germanic in the way that we think of rules right we're like this is the law and it's like if I infract it I'm infracted and here's the $500 fine it, the rules or canons in the church are things that are like the standard practices of the church and it is up to the bishop with the advice or not the advice but it's up to the bishop who is the uh, we call this economia which uh, you can probably hear a modern world word in economia right economy right which is the running of the household in the ancient world is where they say economy which is why we say economy to this word so the, the bishop as the father of the household, again, going back to that household idea, this is Paul, this comes up a lot in scripture, uh, he has the ability in a situation to apply leniency to a situation. So say something went really bad and the first marriage blew up and it really was that somebody had like a mental health issue and this person was basically just kind of like, it always takes two to tangle, but when there's like a mental health situation or somebody just like goes full neo-pagan, uh, polyamorous or what, like, right, then like, okay, like, this this needs in. Now adultery is in the picture, right? The It can be that the second marriage, the, the bishop might abrogate and not do like those penitential prayers mm -hmm. because of the situation. But that's up to the bishop and it's something that write letters to the bishop. I can call him too, but it's always nice to have, I won't say paper trail, but like have actual <laughs> letters being sent. The, the case that I was thinking of is um, someone mentioned on Search the Scriptures, the Dean Constantine mm -hmm. podcast, where uh, there was a Mormon couple and then uh, the wife became Orthodox and then the husband divorced her because of that. Uh, because Mormon, right. Because from the Mormon perspective, she apostatized. Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess she won't have one of her own play nuts or something. <laughs> Sorry, Mormon stuff is wacky. Wacky. <laughs> I mean, people think we're wacky, but that takes it to a whole another mythological <laughs> realm. I don't know what to say. So yeah, I like what what uh, I think the it's bishop could in that say like it is still considered. I think a first marriage. It would be something that bishop or even the synod, for example, let's say she married somebody who had never been married before. Now we're really getting into the weeds here. <laughs> but And they wanted to go to seminary and then they wanted to be ordained the priesthood. 
anyone ordained to the priesthood cannot have a marriage, and, and, and the wife too cannot have a previous marriage in the mix. You are to be the priest of and married one wife. Now, are there situations where bishops or descendants have blessed certain situations because of something like that? Yes, mm-hmm. there are. There is. Is that what the rule is? What the canon is? Yes, because that's what Scripture says. And it's very strong in the fathers. So, because I don't know about you guys, when I was growing up, you know, we get to like a episcopos or an elder is supposed to be the husband of one wife. Lord, of, uh, I almost said Lord of the Rings. See, the Lord is getting out of there. Okay. Uh, we all debate what does it mean to be the husband of one wife? Does that mean the third wife? He's the husband of one. He's not. He doesn't have fourteen wives. He doesn't have a harem, right? He's not Abraham. <laughs> He only has a wife, but is the th- does the third wife count? What are you referencing? In Paul, First Timothy, and in Titus, where it says that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. So there's a whole in the early church. There's all sorts of discussion about this, and even in a lot of churches, when they're talking about who qualifies to be leadership, and you get to that husband and one wife, you can die, you can interpret that in many ways. But the fathers, when they see husband and one wife, they see husband of one wife, period. That's it. So, for example, if my Matushka divorced me, I could not seek to be remarried and stay a priest. If she died, I could not seek to be remarried and stay a priest. Can you imagine trying to date a priest? <laughs> the awkward, the weirdness, and like that—that that, I mean, just your like that is why there is a certain sense of like the priest has to be at a certain sense of dignity and distance because that's weird. Because it's all—I mean, we think in the Protestant context and we don't think about that at all. But in Orthodox Church, like with priesthood and what what priests handle, which is more sensitive typically than a lot of Protestants. It's just, it is unworthy. It's just not, on one hand, the optics are obviously awful. Can you imagine a priest trying to date a member of a parish? That's weird. Okay. So, yeah, no, once you, basically, diaconate and beyond, that's it. Whoever, whatever state that you are in, that is it. You can ask to be laicized. You can be in a situation, and this was a huge challenge, actually. Think of the Russian church in the 18th century. <clears throat> a lot of women die in childbirth, historically, right? Or situations, or people just die because they all of the diseases and whatever, right? So there are many, this isn't just some kind of esoteric thing, this is an active thing, and I've seen it in North America multiple times. So in Russia, you could have a priest who has a kid, uh, a wife who dies, has got six kids. What's he gonna do? He can't take care of the kids. He can maybe have somebody like help him, but it's probably got to be an older lady because if he has like help from a younger lady, then there's also the optics of this. St. John Chrysostom talks about all of this stuff. Because if you go read Paul and he starts talking about widows and like why widow, young widows or young situations, they should be married but because of all of these issues, right? Uh, so anyways, there's all sorts of orphanages for priest kids, basically. Hmm. Not orphanages, but basically like homes for priest kids because the priest stayed a priest and maybe went and became a monk. And then the czar actually paid for the kids' education and they're kind of in boarding schools. And yeah, wholly different world, but that's how they dealt with it. So that would be a situation where if, if that were to happen, if you, like as me, a priest, you'd have to go that route or well, lay aside basically being voluntary. I would, I would ask the synod to return me to the state of being a layman, and then I could, re, I could remarry. But I would no longer function at all as a clergyman. Makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, part of even talking about that, which is like, why am I talking about this in a catechumen class? It's just to get an idea of the life of the church and the way of the sense of decorum and the sense of like what life in the church is like uh, and you because you actually pay attention to read the Pauline epistles in the New Testament there's all sorts of discussion about all sorts of situations uh, not just Paul saying like how could it be that you're sleeping with your you know your stepmother or something like that in first Corinthians right to like what do we do with the widows what do we do with the older ladies how do we help them what do we, what do we do with this right 
So Paul talks about like they should be at a certain age, and there's you know this is how we need to help that. So all of that kind of literature in the New Testament, that is the grounds of what develops into canon law in the Orthodox Church, where the Church continues to legislate and make decisions about, say, a barbarian. I'm talking about a certain canon. A barbarian comes in to a village, steals a woman from a family, from a husband. She has kids in captivity because she's been stolen. Okay, she returns. What do you do? Right. So the church has to do. Right. So there's canons about this stuff. Okay. We have a long mystery. Oh, long mystery. No, not long mystery. Long history and long institutional experience. Is there any? Yeah. You can take this as concisely or as elaborately as, as you like, but just kind of because it's a reality for so many people uh, in America, in North America, can you give a little bit of insight of church thought of marrying heterodox Christians, as that's what so many people face? Or like it's in a, in a, not um, ideal. Okay. And the other thing, if you are blessed to marry somebody outside of the church, there is also a sense, it's not like you're like signing like a legal contract, but that your kids would be baptized in the Orthodox Church, and that the center of things is the Orthodox Church. Uh, and it is also hoping and praying that over time, because this does happen, that people would be open in, to Orthodoxy because of that. Because a lot of times people might get interested in Orthodoxy. Somebody's grown up in the church, they date somebody that they met in college, right? They've never heard of Orthodoxy before in their life, and now they've encountered it, and now they're interested, and then they actually, like, conversion happens through marriages sometimes. So, uh, there is not a general, like, rule about it. It's just, I mean, a divided household is always going to be complicated. And, uh, kind of there can be better situations and there can be worse situations. Mm-hmm. You can have a spouse that's fully on board that just can't do it. And you have those who are just be like, you worship them idols, you know? Right. In that situation, that, that in of itself that, would probably that, make the relationship I, not get very far. <laughs> I would hope so. But people make all sorts of decisions. I'm, I'm in that situation myself. Mm-hmm. So I've seen, uh, you know, I'm married to a Roman Catholic and. Uh, and she has done more to help me raise Orthodox children than anybody ever could. Like, uh, she'll she'll keep me on the fast when I start <laughs> like uh, trying to lawyer around it. <laughs> and uh, like, uh, she she knows how to cook Lenten meals, and and she comes to just about every service here too. And knows knows the faith well enough that she's taught Sunday school here before. But she is staying Roman Catholic. Uh, and and still, you know, marry marry Orthodox if you can. Right. So yeah, it would, be, it would be definitely infinitely preferable. But life calls us in different situations where we're at, and just where we're at. It's better to be in the church and suffer some things than to not be in the church. Especially if you're younger and not married, I highly suggest. So the question right now is. We have a lot of young guys who are coming into the church, and what do we do? Because we don't have a whole lot of young women who are coming to the church right now. Why I, the algorithms of the internet is honestly what I would say. Uh, so because of that, my suggestion to a lot of younger guys is to try to go to regional Orthodox events and things. Like, don't just stick at one parish. I mean, make one parish your home, but like, there's something like that means getting plugged in and trying to figure out and then going to those events it might sound weird to say go to monasteries but honestly go to monasteries because it's all about networking and trying to figure out that there might be a lady that's just right for you but she's in a parish in Pennsylvania and you meet somebody at a monastery and then then you you know who knows and I have four unmarried daughters they're all available (laughs) (laughs) just just get one of you <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> That's top much marketing right there. <laughs> so, does anyone have any questions about that? Any of that? Not Reader Gregory's four daughters, but. 
<laughs> they don't listen to these, so <laughs> these recordings. <laughs> Do you have any questions about sickness, suffering, and death? Sure, I'll talk about death. Okay. Uh, question no. Um, I want to hear what the uh, Orthodox concept is. Because uh, unlike uh, Protestant churches like Baptist churches and Pentecostal churches, Methodist churches, churches that I have been a part of prior to here, uh-huh. uh, this is the only place that I've ever been that they pray for dead people. Which still strikes me as very intriguing. Because I still don't get it. So. So I believe, let's see here. Thomas has a good way of talking about this, but I can't remember where it is. Okay. So we have uh, inherited from antiquity from the church of praying for the dead. Uh, it is something because, uh, as we've talked about from the very beginning, about the way that we worship and what the reality of worship. Uh, that is when we enter into worship and the reality of worship is that we worship with everyone that has gone on before us, right? Uh, those who are standing in the throne room of God in the heavenly places so that we are participating in that heavenly worship. Uh, when there's questions put to Jesus about, you know, the guy who married, ends up marrying uh, the woman who marries seven brothers, and uh, Jesus' response is, I'm not the God of the dead, but I'm the God of the living of God because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. Uh, they're alive in God. They're not dead. Uh, the Orthodox Church does not have and not ha- has, doesn't sense that there is, the, in the Protestant world, there's this kind of finality of once someone is dead, that's basically that. And the, the Christian Church has historically never had this idea when somebody passes, that's that. Uh, this is also not a Jewish idea. To this day, uh, if you were to go to Jewish funerals, they have particular things that they do in the same kind of time period that we do, where we have a seven-day memorial and a 40-day memorial, because there is a very strong sense that when someone is dead, it's not like they basically pulled the eject button or whatever and they just out of the body, right? There is a very strong sense that our soul is enmeshed and integrated with our bodies in a much deeper sense that dying is a, a slow moving away from the body. It's not just immediate ejection. So that is why the the church has seven day, like a week memorial, a 40 day memorial, and an annual memorial uh, of praying for the transition from this life to the next. So there is a always in the church been a sense of uh, that because people are alive in Christ that they're alive period that they're not just I mean, you can see where like in popular in general that's I did we, we it's in our conscience that people are alive even after they've passed uh, there's a quip that St. C.S. Lewis made about praying for his friends who've died that like if I don't pray if I don't have anybody left because all my friends have passed so that is why I pray for them uh, the church has always prayed for those who have passed uh, there is some sense in the way Father Thomas Hopko if you think about time uh, that God being eternal uh, there is a sense in which prayer that the body of Christ because we are all connected to each other that there is still a sense because prayer enters into the eternal and infinite time that our prayers are still efficacious for those who have passed this life because we're not on the other side of things we're not talking about we're like entering, entering into the infinite we're not entering into uh, 2023 in heaven right we're entering into what has always been and always will be so there is a sense in which our uh, we pray for the repose, that they uh, is peaceful, uh, and that it is in Christ that they're resting in the bosom of Abraham. Uh, that is up to God's judgment about those things. 
So it's not like, I, I think that the way of talking about this is more about being connected to each other and trying to help each other through prayer, which we do on this side of the veil as well, uh, as opposed to what can happen uh, in certain ways in Roman Catholic circles, how they can talk about it, that you got to make sure that you serve so many masses in order to kind of like uh, put points in the account or like shift money from this account over into this account so that everything's okay and they get released from purgatory. Now, you might think that I am like besmirching the Roman Catholic Church. They don't really talk like that anymore unless you go talk to traditionalist Catholics. But that is roughly what was going, how they think. Is that fair, Peter Gregory? It, it is fair. And there are a lot of concepts out there that are not, that are still on the books, like, like a plenary indulgence versus a partial indulgence. And, uh, and, 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 and there are things that I don't bring up in conversations about this because they always go south when I, when I do bring them up. But um, the way, and, and, and please stop me if I'm, if I'm wrong in this, but the way that it's been explained to me too is, is that we, our, our process of theosis, of divinization, it continues uh-huh. all through our life, and it really continues after, after we pass on. We still become more, um, more the image and the likeness of God and more united with God. And, and, it, and it, it, it keeps going. And so, um, and, and, I, and I think that's where the, the Roman Catholics have tried to, like, find a good um, a Thomas box. You can put it in and define <laughs> it exactly right and come up with a formula for how, like... Uh, that's why they had limbo in order to account yeah. for all the babies who weren't baptized. It, exactly. Which they've now gotten rid of as a Thelagumina, just in a theological opinion. But that was, if you've read Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. I mean, limbo is where the babies are that have, weren't baptized. That's why they try to baptize babies as quickly as possible. So, I mean, what, part of what... I, 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 I know most... I don't think any of you have a Roman Catholic background. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, even if you were to talk to most modern-day, like, Novus Ordo, like, typical Roman Catholic, they won't even know that that's really still a thing. But if you are to actually push into it, that is what is still actually what the theology is. Not limbo, but well, I don't, it, it's, I'm not Roman Catholic, so I don't have to account for these things. But it is there. So I, I'm trying to differentiate that Orthodoxy's sense of these things is more of, and this can be overplayed, but I think that there's something true about this, is more organic, and it is about the relationships and the prayer uh, and the person moving closer to God and communion with God, as opposed to they have still 15 years in purgatory because they did this in and this then and this then and they have these like um, years of punishment attached to them in order to clear off the dross in order to ascend to enter into heaven. That is the thinking. That is not in the Orthodox Church. And it's, it's not in much of the Catholic Church. It's got on the paper. Right. Like mo- most Catholics would... Would, would not be able to relate what Father just did. But if you go back two generations, it was. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. Vatican II, basically, started the revolution. These are things that were de- debated about and argued about between Orthodoxy and Roman Catholics early on. I'm talking about 14th century, 13th century, there's all the debates going back and forth. Because the Orthodox were saying, the Roman Catholics were saying that there's a literal physical fire that is what envelops you. And the Orthodox Church says, no, that is not the case. It is not material fire. Uh, the experience of hell is the experience, this is, Father Thomas talks about this. If you want more books, I've got three or four volumes that talk about the soul after death and all this stuff and the way the Orthodox Church thinks about it. Uh, but the reality is that the experience of hell is the experience of souls who have not fully attach themselves to God who are in the presence of God and experience God as fire. We experience him as fire too. We just experience him as the fire of love and they experience that the fire of God as judgment because their hearts are not pure. I say there. I say our hearts. We need to purify our hearts. The whole idea of this is for us to purify ourselves so that we are ready to accept him in the fullness of who he is. Uh, That's why it ends with God, that God be all in all. 
if I remember, that's like the last. Yeah, to be filled with all the fullness of God, this and this alone is what Orthodox spirituality is about. Go ahead. Now, um, well, because we're out of time right now, I think that oh. we need to expound more on that for the next lesson. Okay. What What exactly? The, uh, the whole like concept of hell. The whole concept of hell? Yeah. Okay. We can do that. What I suggest is reading the kingdom of heaven in chapter 8, the final judgment, heaven and hell, and the kingdom of heaven. And we can talk about that. Sound good? All right. Quick question, just... Is last class next week the last class for a while? Correct. This class will kick up again in the spring. Uh, I'll just because I'll just talk to some folks. There are some folks who have been around for a while that I expect to bring in on October first, which is a Sunday, two Sundays from now. Uh, those who have like came in the middle of these classes or that there will be another round of catechism and I'll probably do something very similar uh, and it's not if, if you've been at most of these classes uh, if there's some that you missed and maybe coming to them but we can, we can work something out because uh, if you've been to half of them I don't feel like you need to come through a whole another 16 <laughs> sessions unless you really want to because Adrian has <laughs> so that's up to you but we can talk about it, okay? Uh, Lord, now let us all thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes is in the salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people alike to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 We're good for Tuesday, right?